Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a daily plant productions podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward, wild bows return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman, and Scott, what are you doing? Huh? What? Oh, I'm just uh, just breaking into this building so you won't split up our partnership. Uh, please, please reinforce my dangerous behavior. Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense, but uh, okay. Hooray! This is the weekly podcast where you and I eagerly dive into Wildbo's world of superhuman tramp stance, whodunits, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. This week, we're back in Torch to cover chapters 7.5 and 7.6. After the craziness of Eclipse last week, we have a couple of chapters which uh, continue the Torch trend of really just focusing on character, drilling down to these character moments, and uh, we spend a lot of time with Kenzie and a little bit of time with Byron in these ones. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting, like... um character underlining moments for, for both of these characters. And I, I think I we're going to point out relatively quickly that we've got some um, characterization on Byron that we haven't really seen before. And, and certain, I don't know, for some reason, something about these two chapters, I suddenly got a lot of people's concern about Kenzie. Not like I hadn't been, you know, aware that there were Kenzie issues, but these chapters were the ones where I was like, Okay, yeah, that's devious. <laughs> right, right. I mean, and, and there's, I think there's a lot of talk about Kenzie and, and why this behavior is so concerning. Um, I'm, I go back and forth on, I'm worried about the stuff she could do, and I'm worried about her mental health. And those are two different things that could actually compound on each other. But I think we kind of see, see examples of both them in these chapters, and I'm, anxious to to really pick it apart and, and explore it yeah all right let's let's get let's head that way sweet um so first um i guess we'll do the community spotlight where we read what people wrote from the last two weeks threads because our question was what's your favorite example of descriptive writing from wild bow and we let that simmer for two weeks because last uh last episode was double stuffed we didn't have time for a discussion um, and so let's let's get into it. Um, I don't think we're going to read everyone's sample, are we, Scott? I mean, we don't have to, but they're they're nicely written samples of writing. They surely are. They surely are. Um, let's. <laughs> that would take a very long time, though. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to read them. Okay, it's fine. Sorry, we didn't we didn't discuss this ahead of time. Um, so Vanny the Squid uh, points out. The description of Eden when Taylor enters the um, um, the underground kind of giant space where she's she's uh, sequestered uh, as being the, the the most beautiful piece of writing and and I agree. I like this one a lot because I think um, one of the challenges of descriptive writing is is not describing stuff that everyone knows about, but and just setting a stage, but describing something that nobody has ever seen before, how you have to do this, how you have to, to build the structure of, of this thing to make it visible to people is, is a challenge. And Wild Bo uses like the, the image of volcanoes, mid eruption, stone mingling with orange, red magma. Um, this idea of this breathtaking, the sheer elemental nature of it. I just think it's, it's very kind of colorful writing to paint this otherworldly thing that is 
crazy. Yeah, it's cool because it captures the it, it uses abstraction to capture the idea of a volcanic eruption. It's not necessarily saying it looks like a volcanic eruption. It's saying it's right. It's like a volcanic eruption, but applied to the concept of uh, an alien trying to look like a human. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so the next one from Stuck in Reddit Factory, uh, they say, Wildo is best at describing things by using the descriptive equivalent of negative space in our narrative expectations to give a character empathy where we might otherwise just label them and move on. Um, and they, they pull out the example of one of the first bits from Dot's character before we really know anything about who or what Dot is, um, where basically we're we're seeing little details like she wears fingerless gloves and she moves along the ground very carefully and and i think that's that's very interesting that like we're um like 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 they point out we're filling in the periphery of these images with uh with our expectations yeah no i i agree with that 100 percent. and i like i like what he he says here after sharing some of this writing is um we know that Dot is a tiny no-bug creation, and this passage doesn't exclude that, but the shop hands, fingerless gloves, and especially naming her sort of suggests a human, slowly and carefully implying danger and thoughtfulness. Dust implies ruins, clean and warm, implies that she's scavenging to survive. We got a person whose name we know exploring dangerous ruins to survive. That's a narrative we're stating, starting to form in her head without Wildbow ever actually saying it. And that is exactly what descriptive writing does, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Regvlas... Um, it points out actually the the moment where, where we first see Victoria in her in her transformed uh, state um, in in Worm, um, you know the, the wretch basically, um, and and yeah, I, I also find this to be uh, beautiful. It, it's it seems even more like you know impactful in retrospect, kind of knowing more about Victoria's character. Yeah, and it's I mean it's similar to the description of Eden. Uh, purposefully mm-hmm. but i think because it's so much more like upfront and personal because we know victoria we know who this person is we know amy um this is much less otherworldly and much more like terrible <laughs> like i love um the, the 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 lines here of the the swan curve of the nape of the neck the delicate hands the countless other features features these beautiful things these like the, the image of these things are beautiful but then it it switches it up with repeated over and over again throughout it even says it might have been something objectively beautiful had it not been warped by desperation and loneliness and panic and i love that i even love how um those words warped by desperation and loneliness and panic. I like that the, the syntax of the sentence there Mm -hmm. is not and desperation, loneliness and panic putting and between each of them, I think like kind of makes it more impactful, stretches out the sentence a little bit and forces you to reckon with each one of those emotions independently. Yeah. It's, it's creating a clearer image of this as something that, that could be, appealing but but then it's twisted into like a horror um you know uh, kind of emotional palette by by the the mention that yeah it's 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 off it's definitely off and you would know it if you saw it i think and that's you know it's it's interesting to think about that and how like it's not like i don't know i'm just i'm, I'm switching back into talking about ward mode but like the fact that victoria wasn't just 
a pile of Victoria parts. She was a pile of Victoria parts, all of which were sort of off and and askew looking um, because yeah. of the state of mind that Amy was in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Shinichi um, reflects on Taylor's thoughts during Spec thirty point seven, um, and this is this is basically the point. This is one of the later points in her transformation, um, where she's she's no longer viewing anyone except her minions as even potential allies and just and 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 uh uh you you finally see you know how far how completely she's gone and um and it's and she admits to herself like toward the end of it i was just a little unhinged my perceptions were broken i knew that um but she she decides she has to to stop everyone and take them over and it's, it's basically kind of the apotheosis of of her transformation yeah and i love the writing around um we talked about this when we covered it but the realization that people are cheering and the way wildbow kind of plays with that double meeting there where we the reader understand something that taylor does not and and so we have to describe it in a way that's abstract enough um to where we make it clear that taylor doesn't see this as cheering she sees it as screaming um, but still clear enough to where we, the reader, understands what's actually going on here, and that's a that's a kind of a, a dangerous line. Like you gotta you gotta thread that needle pretty perfectly um, to to make both of those things land. And I think the writing there really does it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the next one is from CC Stat, and, and it's actually. Um, I, I think this is a very interesting pick. It's Taylor's stakeout of Topsy's base back <laughs> in the the period of time when she was on the wards, and it, it's just this this a lot of it is sort of because it's in Taylor's voice. I think is what makes it so fun. Um, mm-hmm. that she's it's this it's not just a description of a visual; it's a description of how bored she is. Um, just stuck on this rooftop doing nothing which is you know the last thing in the world that taylor wants to be doing yeah and i think the thing that cc stat pointed out here that i liked the most was how um the way she describes the boringness reflects the coldness of the atmosphere i like this special kind of boring where i was told to limit how much i moved because the half percent chance that the targets in the building on the other side of the street might look out of a window so she's sitting out here in the cold and she's literally frozen because she can't move um for risk of being discovered and i love how the the image of that reflects her mindset as well yeah yeah um and then next uh from sarah penguin the introduction of the siberian is the scene um and uh, and basically it's it's just you know this terrifying um basically again like a horror image of this nightmare, you know, woman who is completely not afraid of uh, anything that's happening around her and makes like an inappropriate smile. I love this line that there wasn't a trace of tension in her body as though she'd just woken up in a safe place. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. It's such a good line. It's yeah. so good. So um, I wanted to offer my answer because we were here yeah. and I thought I would do that. Cool. Um so I was thinking about this for a while and I went back and forth, but I actually think one of the, the my favorite just pieces of descriptive writing here is the opening of Ward. Um, the way the skyscrapers are described, the way the color is described. Um, I think this is such a great 
impactful statement on what the whole entire book is going to be about. So it, it uses descriptive writing in a, a best way, which is to reflect the themes of the thing that it's about to tell. Um, and I, I just love this, this idea of altogether the light that bounced off the city and reached skyward gave the clouds images that were gold, not silver. And I just love, I love the meaning behind it. I love how it's described. It's, it was, it's great. It's really good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I think my, my actual answer for, for my favorite bit of Wildo's writing is actually some of the stuff from Twig. Um, and I know exactly the passage I have in mind, even I'm not going to say it because we're not going to do Twig spoilers. Um, yes. Perhaps I'll put that in the Reddit post as a Easter egg. Um, I, I think in <laughs> I terms of... I think it counts as an Easter egg if you <laughs> say it. Well, I'll, I'll spoiler it. Um, but I think in terms of Worm, um, the introduction of the Seamurg in the, um, in the uh, Traveler's Ark uh, is among my favorite you know, descriptions of a, of a creature, like just kind of conveying how cold and inhuman the Seamurg is while, um, like it's, it's, it, 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 the writing makes you feel like a kind of visceral fear of this thing successfully, which is, you know, the goal, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, so let's move on into a little bit of general discussion, moving on from the discussion, discussion question. Yeah, so I think one of the things we wanted to do is just circle back kind of to our discussion of Eclipse and the thing that we were that was brought to our attention literally immediately after we finished our recording last week, which is the um, specific nature of the structure of the Eclipse arc and how it actually works. Um, we mentioned this in the Reddit thread last week, so if you were reading there, you saw this. But for those of you that haven't, and Matt, you want to explain why Eclipse is structurally brilliant on top of just content? Yeah, so uh, Eclipse is a palindrome, and the 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 minute level on which this is true is is rather staggering. I I started to actually map it out, and I didn't finish, unfortunately. But for example, the first image of the arc is Ashley looking in the mirror. Um, and looking at her reflection and the last image essentially of the arc is her looking at her own face in the face of her clone um, and pretty much everything from th that point forward in either direction is, is is a sort of either either reflection or or in some cases like an inversion like in some cases yeah. it's in some cases it's an equivalent thing in some cases it's like the same thing but the opposite direction like like for example and and because it's eight chapters basically the 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 hinge point is the end of the fourth chapter the beginning of the fifth chapter uh where it's sort of you know basically that's the everything up to that point ashley's sort of like rising in power and and maybe plateauing and then everything after that point she's maybe stationary for a bit and then begins to decline in power yeah. Um, yeah. I, one thing that I noticed that that killed me was that um, the the only real like actual continuity from from the end of one chapter to the start of the next one that I remember was the end of the fourth chapter to the beginning of the fifth chapter. I mean, it's not actually chronological continuity; it's continuity through the character of Jay. So Jay 
like approaches her and then it, and then the start of the next chapter is Jay is still with her. So the hinge, the emotional hinge of the whole arc, if you will, is the character of Jay. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, this is this is the kind of thing that made me so mad, Matt, because it, you go back and listen to our podcast and we were like, we were right there. I mean, we talked about the cyclical nature of the arc. We talked about things at the beginning playing, paying off at the end. Um, we just did not fully extrapolate out the meaning of that. I mean, we, I think we even talked about, um, I definitely noticed that the beginning of, or the end of four and the beginning of five were the only ones that we kind of stay not even in the same scene, but almost in the same relative amount of time. We were just like, we were just like one more little hump we had to get over before it connected to us. And we just didn't quite get there. But I encourage you guys to go look through the chapter and you can make like they're, they're everywhere. The links are everywhere. Um, and like Matt said, sometimes they're direct comparisons. Sometimes they're uh, inversions on each other. But each and every major beat of the story uh, reflects off of itself in some way yeah. later in the story. And and like unless I'm mistaken, it's it's quite it's quite perfectly lined up in the sense that like the beginning of chapter one and the end of chapter eight mirror and the beginning of chapter two and the end of chapter seven mirror. And, and like, yeah, you trace, you trace backwards through the later chapters and forwards through the earlier chapters, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and this, this fits so well with eclipse, right? I mean, we, we even talked about that on the podcast. We yeah. talked about the idea of the eclipse, the, the darkness temporarily covering up the light as it, as it passes over it. And I, I love, I love how that all binds together to form this this idea um like i i was thinking a lot about the idea of of darkness versus light that we have been kind of dealing with through these arc titles so far and the thing about eclipses of course is that while it is darkness it is by its very nature temporary darkness and i think that is where we end ashley with that whole thing where it's where we have this moment of of where we really go in deep and we we go into her past to fully understand how she got to the place she is now but we show that that darkness does eventually go away the eclipse eventually ends and in the future there is hope there is light and i just i love i love that so much yeah i i don't know if i'm being too literal here but if if the hinge point if the darkest if it is an eclipse if the darkest part of the eclipse is the transition in the middle then that means Ashley's darkest moment is G when she killed Jay. Yeah, I mean her her <laughs> interaction with Jay. Uh, Jay in general is her darkest thing she's struggling with. Let's say mm -hmm. yes. Anyway, definitely worth looking back over Eclipse and and noticing all these things and how organic they are. Actually, like. You right. would think that you would notice this. There's so I, I I made like 16 bullet points or something just for the first two chapters and the last two chapters. So you'd think you would notice these parallels, but we didn't. Yeah. I, I don't, yeah. So. And organic is the exact word because like yeah we have we have recurring beats we have her talking to children um, at the beginning of one chapter and at the end of another chapter. And then we have her uh, meeting at a bonfire in two different chapters, one on one end of the arc and the other on the other. Um, and these things, they do mirror themselves, but they don't feel like it doesn't feel contrived. Right. It, it's, it's, it's done in a way that it's just like, 
not only is this done for a very specific structural purpose, but there's the story element behind there as well. It didn't it didn't break the story element to form it to a structure. It it used the structure to enhance the story elements it was already telling. Yep, exactly. All right. We love talking about Eclipse, obviously. Yeah, obviously. Um, but let's move on yeah. to Torch. Let's move on into 7.5. And so we resume Torch, uh, which was occluded by Ashley's arc, and Victoria joins her team for a meeting in a public place, immediately noting Kinsey's surprising absence, especially considering that they're all there to see Kinsey's project. And it says, Victoria almost hesitates before approaching her team. Yeah, she uh, she absolutely does. And that hesitate hesitation is accompanied once again by a pair of italicized thoughts by victoria not just internal musings and observations and and narration from her brain but declared just unspoken statements and those statements are i don't know how i'm going to help these guys jessica and then a little bit later what do i even do and i think it's the first one in particular that i want to spend some time on today because i think it's very interesting that we link back to jessica in this moment and i think that's very telling and important because if you read this sentence without the word the name jessica in it if you just if you just have victoria saying aloud i don't know how i'm going to help these guys um on the surface that communicates the same reticence she has um she's worried about them but Adding Jessica to it does something else. It obviously links Victoria back to her mentor um, and links her motivation back to Jessica. And that you start to get think, thinking of like, OK, why is Victoria here right now? Um, and not it is not just because of her friendship with these people It is not just because she cares for these people. I don't want to diminish those facts. Those are definitely true. But um, she probably feels that. It was Jessica that got this whole ball rolling, and now that she's gone, she feels an obligation to her to continue on with this, not just to discover the hidden uh, threat that's under these guys, but to take care of them. I don't know how I'm going to help these guys, Jessica, to me, says, you were helping them, you were here to help them, now you're gone, and it falls to me. And I have no idea how I'm going to do it. So that's hence the 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 pressure, the hesitation in this moment. This is a huge, huge thing for her to put on her shoulders. Yeah. And I think it's critical to like take her at her word here where she's saying, I don't know how I'm going to help these guys. Like, I don't think that's a, you know, a rhetorical statement. I think she has no idea what she's going to do. And I actually think there's a good case in these couple of chapters that she's kind of i mean maybe this is a mean way of saying it but she's kind of fumbling toward something that might be helping but um i think she i think she doesn't have a lot of confidence in what she's doing yeah yeah victoria is a very smart person she's very skilled but she doesn't know everything and i think you're absolutely right i think there are some errors made in places here and uh we'll, we'll get to those yeah I do I do love that the that she has broken out of this hesitative spell by the big question mark shaped space where Kenzie was supposed to be. So we show once again that when Victoria gets in these moments where she feels overwhelmed by the pressure of all these things, she's thinking about the implications of everything and how does she get going? How does she focus? It's focusing on the one immediate conflict, the one immediate challenge, which is Kenzie's not here. That's not good. She should be here. She's always the first one here. So that's something I can focus on that I can immediately do something about. And so that breaks the hesitation spell and she goes for it. 
Yeah, yeah. We've I think we've noted before that she's she's really good when she has a problem in front of her to solve. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So one thing we talked about briefly a little bit ago was that this pair of chapters are big ones for further team characterization and character development as well. Yeah, I, I think I think what kind of what we've done here is we've we've kind of wrapped up Rain's immediate storyline and then we've spent uh, a couple chapters and an entire arc talking about Ashley stuff and now we've kind of just picked those guys up and pushed them to the side for a little bit and it's not it's not to say that their stories are done with but besides our protagonist they've gotten the majority of our conflict and our resolution so far throughout the story so we've we've stuck them in a prison cell we'll be back with them later but for now let's move to focus on these other people that uh, need a little more need a little more characterization love and that's absolutely what we're doing in these these two chapters that we're 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 spending some time with Kenzie we're spending some time with Byron's deal we're establishing some stuff with Byron and Tristan we're even getting more and more characterization and more subtle information about Chris Um, so we're kind of kind of moving through and, and I think we're maybe still kind of settling on which is going to be our next like focus character um, of the story. Not even that it has to happen in like a, a linear fashion like that. It just has in the past. So, yeah. And, and I, I feel like Chris and, and Kenzie become a tad, you know, more a tad less, I should say mysterious over the course of these two chapters. Yeah. Um, not Byron though. He's still sinister and, and, and uh, uh, inscrutable to me. Um, that was, that was a joke. Um, so, <laughs> sorry. So, so, uh, in terms of characterization, I really like this bit, um, where they're kind of giving, uh, Victoria's kind of giving Chris a hard time. And, uh, this happens a lot where a lot of things are accomplished in a, in a short span, but basically Victoria's saying, I don't know, Chris, uh, speaking about Kinsey. I think she has the edge when it comes to certain kinds of maturity, work ethic, maintaining the relationship pillars. What the hokey garbage fuck is a relationship pillar? Chris asked. And she's more polite, I said, teasing. The pillars are honesty, trust, respect, caring, sharing. Chris withered like he was in physical pain, a vampire exposed to the cross, hissing through his teeth and braces. Um, And for some reason, like, that just makes me love Chris immediately, like, that that he's... I'm not sure what exactly it is about this that that makes this a hilarious moment and and wins me over to him. Um, But it's also establishing, you know, the actual differences between their characters. So, yeah, yeah, I think I I like this moment a lot, too. And I think in this continuing discussion over Chris and Kenzie, that these characters that are only two years apart, but act like they're much more apart. I think this beat, while really funny, also serves as clarification. And I think we, and when I say we, I kind of mean, mean me, um, tend to uh, oversimplify maturity into this all or nothing thing. You're either a mature person or you're not. But I think the text and Victoria make it clear here that there there are layers to that maturity. There are different parts of your general maturity that can develop at different times. So yeah, Chris might seem like he's someone older than his age when it comes to spouting off book knowledge and maybe reading people a little bit. But sometimes he's just a 13 year old boy who gets grossed out by icky, non-masculine things like caring and sharing. Yeah. And I think that's a, a perfect way of framing his character is like 
Kenzie is is immature in certain ways. Chris is immature in other certain ways, and they they're different from each other. Yeah, yeah. And then we extend this beat out to this wonderful conversation about love bugs and and tramp stamps. And there's a few things I wanted to highlight in this exchange, which in in, in classic Wildbow fashion is doing a lot of things at the same time. We just talked about further characterization, so I won't recycle that. But we see in this moment that Chris. Uh, inadvertently reminds the group that Ashley and rain are gone and, and with the changing makeup of the group that there's going to be like a change in tone and style and general attitude. That's going to come Two of your members, two of your guys are gone now and the group is going to act differently. It's going to look differently. It's going to behave differently. And he's kind of serving to remind us of that in this moment. And he's also like, he, he, he uses this, this line here that I think is particularly telling when he says, we're going to end up getting back together as team caramel friendship with tramp stamps like the love bugs have. That's a funny joke, but the group has broken up. They all seem to agree that Victoria in, in chapter four was like super resistant to the idea that they were ever going to get back together. She kind of challenged her mom on this idea that no, we're, we're broken up We're it's done. It's over. Um, but we already see one of our characters kind of already with the mindset of this is where we're heading. We're heading to, getting back together we're heading to resolution like there's there's a there's an assumption of resolution that's that's happening in this conversation yeah i mean they've all been doing their own things in the background and that's i mean i don't want to get to that point prematurely because kenzie's certainly been doing her own thing in the background but that's one great thing about wildlife writing is like all of the side characters were not just in stasis since the last time the protagonist saw them. They're all having their own thoughts and processing things. And you can totally imagine Chris, like you just said, sort of being like, yeah, I see where this is going, you know, in his own mind. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So this is an interesting bit here. I definitely wanted to talk about where Tristan's timer runs out. It's time for him to switch over and he offers to exchange Byron another hour of Tristan time now for three hours of Byron time later. Um, and Byron says no in comments that it feels weird, um, read manipulative, uh, that Tristan chose to go all the way out here knowing that his time would run out soon. Uh, but anyway, they then convince Byron to stick around, which is why we get an extra dose of Byron this arc. Yeah, yeah. But we're seeing here what I think is the setup of of this increasing tension between Tristan and Byron. Um, in the back of our mind, we have to remember that glowworm chapter, Matt, where we saw Byron presumably hire um, an assassin to kill. I I'm still guessing that it was himself. I mean, we don't I don't think that was ever confirmed, but based on what we know on them and, and the and the weirdness of that interaction, um, he hired someone to kill himself if think or. Tristan yeah. rather if if he starts abusing um his time right so so that tension is always kind of in the back of our head and I, I think I think so far they've managed that relatively well though um there's been some minor moments but we've seen moments where Tristan said hey I'll give you more time later if you give me time now and Byron was totally cool with it and said yeah sure whatever um things are getting kind of really bad now i mean the the world is kind of falling apart and and the stakes are rising and and tristan being the more assertive of the two uh might be less and less willing to stick to their schedule and is is maybe trying to use some methods here like like byron kind of points out to kind of uh pressure byron into giving him more time when he needs it um 
I think I think Byron for his part like sees this coming and and his statement here going to play it safe and stick to the routine it comes off as very casual and Byrony but what he's saying here is no we have a routine we're sticking to that routine that's what we're doing yeah I mean it, it, it is an interestingly passive aggressive phrasing of of like someone asks you for a favor and you respond no i'm going to play it safe implying that right. what you're asking for isn't safe that that that, yeah, that you exactly. you are verging on dangerous territory by even asking and that indeed you have created a a situation here um which you know tristan didn't acknowledge tristan tristan wasn't like you know sorry about the fact that you're in the middle of nowhere um when your hour starts <laughs> Which, you know, like, like that's that's the kind of thing that would be a big deal between the two of them. If, you know, it's suddenly it's your turn and you're like, oh, great, I have to walk half an hour to get back to the place that I wanted to be and, and then actually start doing what I wanted to do. And, yep. you know, I, that would I'm, I'm sure that I'm sure that's the kind of that's exactly the kind of thing I'm sure they have conflict about. So, yeah, um, it's and, and honestly, like that didn't occur to me until this until we see this interaction. And then it's like right. really obvious and it kind of makes you think about what it must be like in a like day-to-day like uh how am i going to actually do the stuff i want to do you know very mundane sense yeah and 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 i don't want to just like paint byron as the saint and victim here and tristan as the bad guy because at the end of this whole interaction byron gets a dig in as everyone splits up there was a moment where byron said that got mad about chris using the phrase tramp stamp because a guy he liked in high school had a back tattoo and he wasn't a tramp, and I think it's very Tristan to get upset over a word usage like that. But we see Byron here say, "Tristan was your cr- was your crush, Jet Marion? Wasn't it a role playing game tattoo? He had back hair when he was fourteen, and it's just this like really kind of over the line, mean, passive aggressive dig at someone who." literally can't fight back like they can't come back like you've got them you've embarrassed them in front of everyone else um and and i think that's the result of byron is kind of annoyed with this whole situation he's annoyed with this he didn't want to be out here he kind of got manipulated to get out here um and he's pissed off at his brother but byron doesn't act directly byron is passive aggressive and so that's the way he's gonna he's gonna show his anger with this situation yeah, and I mean, this is like the worst thing for a passive-aggressive person because you can't, they can't have a confrontation. The closest thing they could get would be like going in front of a mirror and swapping back and forth or something. Um, and so all he has is like tools that are ultimately passive-aggressive. Yeah, that's true. In order to like express himself. Yeah, and, and that's a good point. I wonder um, which came first, the chicken or the egg, you mm-hmm. know? I mean, his his personality definitely seems more passive than Tristan's, and thus, when he's mad, it would be more passive aggressive. I just, I, I, I think it's probably, um, the egg in this case. <laughs> uh, but anyway, right. uh, so they decide to split up to find Kenzie, who still hasn't shown up, and Victoria, being by far the most mobile, finds her first. And uh, she had apparently tried to communicate a different meeting place to the others, and then ended up being. Um, forced uh, to blind some people who were too aggressive and asking her about her technology that she's carrying. Um, and there's this bit where the people who she's blinded are saying it, it kind of defending themselves for having uh, uh, been a little bit aggressive s- said, 
you can't know. Maybe they got away with it because they were kids. Parahumans are dangerous. They could be anywhere. Another of the guys said, Young ones are more dangerous, if anything. They don't have the impulse control. Even if that was eerily accurate and true, you guys were nasty about it, Kenzie said. That wasn't okay. Um, and I, li- I like this because, as usual, as I said before, it's, it's doing a bunch of things. Uh, one of which is just to subtly remind us of the deteriorating sentiment toward parahumans. Because the fact that these two people are basically, you know, in complete agreement about the fact that parahumans are dangerous. Like, like you can just imagine a parent telling their kids, you know, don't antagonize any parahumans, Timmy, especially the young ones. They're dangerous. Um, which is exactly how like othering happens. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you're absolutely right. And uh, like these four guys are not law enforcement. They have no authority to be checking out people walking around, but they've taken it upon themselves to do this. And I think, I think we are sowing this, the, the really defining the state of things like the, the, we're at the point where distrust is so ingrained in people that these four guys are willing to hassle this little girl they see walking alone because she might be parahuman. They don't actually even know. They just, hey, she's carrying some weird stuff. What's that box thing? Um, I, I wonder, like, this, like we said at the beginning of this arc, I think we're moving towards this 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 parahuman conflict becoming a major, a major thing. And I was thinking what it like, how much more, what more do we need before this boils up to like full fledged, like organized anti-parahuman rioting? And that got me thinking of what it would take to get there, because I think all this movement needs at this point is like just a dude who's good at leading, leading, like just a charismatic type person to step up and, um, and and take control of this anti-parahuman sentiment and funnel it towards a goal that they want. I wonder if there's some guy that was like part of some some inner circle of power and government that showed a clear clear disgust for parahumans so much so that learning that another person in the circle associating with them caused him to want to quit. I wonder wonder if there's anything like that going on. Yeah. Yeah, if we didn't see such a person storm out of a meeting at one point. Hmm, yeah. Dramatically. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But my favorite thing about this whole thing is on top of this, we have this window into Kenzie here as well. And the more I thought about Kenzie in this scenario, the more I started to wonder because Kenzie gets everywhere early, right? So she's they said they waited 10 minutes for Kenzie to be late before they went out looking for her. So she's been here for probably a little bit longer than that. But at what point does Kenzie start thinking as she stands here alone, wondering where the rest of her team are? At what point does she start wondering, did my friends ditch me? Did they leave me behind? Do they not like me anymore? Do they not want me here? Why aren't they here yet? Where are they? Why aren't they here? And, and get into this agitated panic state when these four guys walk up to her and start asking her questions. Like, like I remember like how mad she got at Chris when she perceived Chris as touching her stuff back in their base because she was agitated about the houndstooth meeting. She almost lost it. And she mentions that these guys were going through her stuff here too. And I wonder at like how agitated was 
Kenzie at this point. Um, how, how much, and I'm not going to, I'm not trying to totally push the blame on her, but it's just kind of so striking to see like everything we know from Kenzie, in my opinion, says she's probably really concerned about where they were. But as soon as she sees them, she goes into Kenzie mode. and It's like, oh, there you are. Oh, look what happened. Uh, and hides like any kind of, um, any kind of concern for that stuff is seen as embarrassing by her. So she won't express that at all. Um, I found this fascinating to kind of dive into. Yeah, it's really interesting to think that maybe she's getting better at covering for her own like extreme distress, which is actually really bad. Because like you said, it, it's it's good that she snapped at Chris in the sense that now everyone at least knows that she's agitated and, and you can kind of talk about what's wrong. But like you just said, I, I bet, I, I mean, it's, I, I bet she was scared on some level. I, I, maybe, maybe you're right in your interpretation. Maybe, maybe she didn't view it as a betrayal, but, but maybe it was still frightening to be alone and cornered by people. Um, but like you said, she just plays it off and is, is just like, Oh yeah, I'd rather talk about my clothes color scheme. Yeah. 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 I don't know. Um, so once everyone assembles, Kinsey then convinces everyone to break into her chosen location for the project test uh, using puppy dog eyes, I guess, to persuade them. Um, and many people like in, in the discussion forums have pointed out that this is exactly the kind of thing that Ashley would have shut down hard um, and that Ashley is really the only one who actually gets how conniving Kenzie can be, like, like when she outflanked her ploy with the faked Bob footage. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that's something I think we said to make note of uh, with Ashley gone. Let's let's pay attention to Kenzie and what she tries to do and, and what the group lets her get away with. And immediately here, immediately post Ashley gone, we have our first example of this and the first decision point for her. And she wins every everyone, every single person except for Chris was against her plan. And yet she wins. <laughs> Yeah, um, kind of want to go through how that happens too, because they're all arguing against her, and then it's maddeningly it's goddamn Victoria who's the first to fold under the pressure and just like okay, all right, fine, and then Sveta who was also resistant is basically like whatever, and then Chris admits he doesn't really care, and then Byron hangs back, but then he joins them anyway in like five minutes. Yeah, yeah. We just talked at the beginning of the chapter how Victoria has kind of inserted herself as the replacement Jessica for this group after she disappeared and how that pressure is overwhelming. She doesn't know what to do. And you're absolutely right that that that's that's what we're seeing here. Um, like it or not, Victoria, these people look up to you and they are going to follow your lead if you make a decision. And and I can see I could see a, a thought process in Victoria's mind where. She thought going along with Kenzie's thing would be maybe good for her that like like we we don't want to shut her down. We don't want to make her feel rejected. We want her to feel part of this. So um, as long as she gives me enough that I feel like this is worth it enough, it's worth the risk enough, I will go along with it. But. But I, I just I, I I worry. Yeah. And I think it's not even that breaking and entering here in this moment does any immediate harm. There are no immediate consequences for this. Nothing goes wrong, but I'm less concerned about the event than I am with the group's ability to handle Kenzie. And this proves that a, a, an Ashley-less group cannot handle her. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty pretty much a complete failure here. Yeah. 
And the most frustrating part of this whole argument for, for me, Matt, is during the entire course of this entire argument, we've had these recurring beats of, of Kenzie's actions described as concerning. The word concerning is used four times when discussing something Kenzie is wanting to do or actively doing. And everyone points out how concerning this stuff is, but they don't do anything about it. They're just like, that's concerning. <laughs> Yeah. It's like there, there, there's this beat right here, like Kenzie unlocks the door rather easily. She just puts a device up to a keypad and then the door unlocks. And and Victoria says, it's concerning just how naturally you did that. And Kenzie's response is. Pfft. And then the text <laughs> structurally just cuts to I helped her lift the box. That's the next beat that happens in the story. So it's it's literally I'm worried about that thing you just did. Okay, I will casually dismiss your worry. And then Victoria's response is, all right, I guess I'm just going to help her then. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, it's just like no one is checking her. No one is stopping her. Like it, it, it is, it is good to point out when, Hey, your behavior might be a little concerning here, but when the person is clearly not listening to you, like, I know you can't control her, but maybe like, don't go along with it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's 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 one of these things where it pays to take the outside view with Kenzie's character and realize that like this swath of destruction that she's wrought through the lives of everyone who knows her, all of those people were also warned about her and also completely failed to properly account for her personality. Yeah. And yeah. so Victoria, unlike Ashley, who actually did have insight into her because of whatever it is that was that is going on with Kinsey, uh, Victoria doesn't get it. She just, she doesn't get it, and she's she's underestimating the nature of the problem, just like Houndstooth, you know, before everything that happened with him and turned him against Kinsey. And you can easily see it going that way again, unless something happens that kind of clues Victoria in. Yeah, and there's this recurring refrain we've had whenever people were challenging Kenzie in the past. The rest of the group says, well, she's gotten better. And I think that is probably true. I think she is in a better place than she was. But she's gone through a lot of rough shit these last few chapters. I mean, she's lost the, the, her closest person. Um, things are not going well. Like, there's, there's little beats about how things are not going well at home. Her dad's suffering. There's probably high tensions at home, too. Um, she's probably not in a very good place right now. So even someone who has made progress and made steps and gotten better can relapse, can fall back into that behavior, especially if the team supports that kind of behavior. Yeah, and you know, I don't like to say things like this because I want to believe that these people can all get better, but one of the issues with personality disorders as distinct from um, traumas, let's say, is that a person with a personality disorder can just learn like patches so that they can pass as not having the disorder but it's still there under the surface and it's still kind of dominating their behavior they're just like we pointed out a second ago learning how to put on a smiling face mm -hmm. even though it's still even though they're still being manipulative right and and you know we've we've talked about this idea that Kenzie uh, puts up project projections of her face to make it so you can't see how disheveled she looks. And and we had these beats where she was challenged on that and told Victoria 
upfront, no, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that for you guys. I wonder how much she has to get pushed before she starts doing that for them. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I'm interested to see how this evolves. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, Kinsey's box turns out, uh, it aggregates data from the past and it does what seems like clever statistical collating and sampling and combination to yield pictures of people who were occupying this space in the past, uh, along with some information about their activities and their interactions. And it turns out that kingdom come is one of the people who use this room and the others seems like have been working on the tinker box that affected the portals. Yeah. I was a little surprised to, to learn that the beat they set up during eclipse came back around so fast, but here's the past camera. Um, this is like obviously thematically very delicious. Like we have a story that's basically about our characters accepting and moving beyond the past versus just running away from the past. And, and now we have a box that looks into the past so we can literally see those moments that we might be accepting or trying to run away from. Yeah. Uh, that's a wonderful thematic element. Yeah. I love, I love that. I hadn't thought of that. But I think the implications of this, as we discussed last week, are rather um, alarming, especially for someone as obsessive and kind of intrusive as Kenzie can be at times uh, to have access to technology like this could be abused. And it's it's a tool that actually ends up helping them here. They get clues and they they go on a, a, a detective search. But um, I have concerns, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> as does everyone else. Again, where Chris says, you're going to be so much scarier when you're older. And Kenzie's response is, well, probably. I'm hoping to get a handle on things before then. Uh, that's the best and worst possible response. <laughs> I know. And Byron's response is, breaking and entering and getting footage of people in bed isn't progress. Uh, he's right. Yeah. But it's important, says Kenzie, so it's fine yeah it's important right that's just just like that's probably how she justified everything she's done yeah um yeah i mean this is this is an incredibly um smart invention you know as like a narrative way of saying like she doesn't even need to have like ultimate panopticon surveillance like abilities because now she can just go to the location she wants to surveil later and still find out what yeah. happened there, yeah. um, which is, yeah, it's pretty uh, uh, powerful and exactly kind of the, the thematic way of showing like, yeah, uh, her, her, her whole thing is um, invasive um, being able to see things you don't want her to see. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, this chapter ends with everyone agreeing that Kenzie's manipulation worked to get them hooked wanting to stick together and pursue this lead um, and Kenzie just kind of maniacally staring. Oh, and it's just such an ominous beat. Like, l- listen to this. Kenzie didn't smile or cheer. Her expression was intense and unmoving with something like a blue fire in her eyes as the box glowed before her. Perfect. This is so different from a normal Kenzie reaction. The text even seems to acknowledge that by saying Kenzie didn't smile or cheer. It's this kind of implicit acknowledgement that that's a thing that Kenzie normally would have done. She didn't do that here. Um, Instead, her expression was intense and unmoving. 
There's a fire in her eyes. Victoria sees all this, Matt. She is the one observing this look in her face. And again, doesn't do anything. So what we've done here is we've just told a deeply troubled 11-year-old girl that manipulating the group into doing things that they don't want to do, as long as you feel that is important enough to do it and is the right way to do things, we've told her that behavior was concerning, but we supported it anyway. So we have vindicated every behavior of that we called concerning of Kenzie. Everything that throughout the chapter we said over and over again, that's concerning, that's scary. We've just told her those things are acceptable because they work. Yeah. Yeah. And that is terrifying. Right. Keep doing that because congratulations, you've kept the team together. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Which it seems as we move on to the next chapter, that's pretty much what's happened because 7.6 and the team is now in a different location, once again doing a past scan of a different area, um, this time having asked for permission. So things are much more you know, above board this time. Yeah, almost as if to perfectly demonstrate that there was no need for actually any breaking and entering in the first place if you could have just went and asked someone for permission. Like, we didn't have to do that. We yeah. just It was just like, it was more, we need to do it and we need to do it now. We I can't explain. We can't wait. We have to do it right now. Yeah. We kind of skipped over the fact that Kinsey just happened to have like a thing that can hack any door. Like she just, yeah. she just made that. She just made something that can break into break into places. Yeah, she spent four whole hours on it. Yeah. And even when Chris was like, "You probably spent four hours on it." Yeah. Nah. And then slowly um, reveals that yeah, yeah she, spent she spent about four hours on it. Four hours making something specifically to break into some place. She's a hero, though. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So there's an interesting side discussion regarding why this shopping center closed down, uh, with different team members offering different explanations. Uh, Chris says. It wasn't built to fill a need. It was put there to make things feel like the home we lost. It's a lot of upkeep and money to prop up something symbolic. And then Byron says, it's already going to pieces. Uh, He kicked at the stone boundary of the fountain he was standing on. A stone or two were missing. Problems, maybe. Yeah, and this is one of those beats where I think the actual context of the thing that they're discussing discussing is almost irrelevant. What matters here is is our characters and and what it says about our characters that they're reacting this way. Chris seems to think that the idea of making something to help make people feel more at home to return to to normalcy is a just a symbolic gesture that is a waste of money and time. His commentary on the desire to return to things it, it is silly and wasteful and and it's something that also is kind of outright rejected by everyone else. Uh Byron says, no, I think that's wrong. Uh, Victoria says so as well. And yeah, Byron sees the, sh- the, the as shoddy construction, a rush job. This is something that Victoria has actually complained about in other places in the, the story before, um, that, that we built these things so quickly and so fast that they were not well constructed. And so she agrees with him. And, and I love this beat here where she says, it would be easier to establish somewhere else than to try and fix anything expensive. So if we extend our metaphor about this this building being symbolic of their views on society's attempts to rebuild itself post-gold morning, then we have to look at the statement and wonder what it means about Victoria. If something is too broken, it's much easier for people to just move on rather than, than try and fix it. Like, 
like your relationships, like the things that have been done to you, like the things that have happened to you. Is that I mean, that's not too far of an extension to say that here. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Um, that's, that's actually why I, I pulled these these quotes out was this whole idea that the different team members are seeing different things here. And Byron and Victoria, like you said, are seeing flawed foundations, something something broken at the source, essentially unfixable. You might as well abandon it. And and that is their yeah. that is their worldview, and that is how they see the world they live in fundamentally. Because you know that you can even view the mall itself as a metaphor for like a a, a attempt at something that failed. Why did it fail? Oh, flawed foundations, say Byron and Victoria. Whereas <laughs> yep. whereas Chris is more like, yeah, I don't know. People are trying to make themselves feel better. Like <laughs> Chris is is actually more optimistic, ironically. Yeah, but I mean, it, it, yeah, people are trying to make themselves feel together, feel better. But I think Chris is saying that is ultimately a, a meaningless gesture. True, that true. like it's an unnecessary thing. It failed because this was this was only made so people could feel better, and it serves no purpose because of that. It's just a symbol. Yeah, that's that's true. I was actually um, to kind of like trying to figure out if any of the other team members kind of weighed in on this issue, um, but it, it didn't seem like they did. But that's, no, that's no, still I would be, of, yeah. Yeah, I would, I would, I would love a, a Sveta um, <laughs> opinion on this thing. Yeah, yeah. Get everybody get Tristan swaps in just to give his take on the building. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So the the team members then identify faces to be focused on by Kenzie's machine. Yeah, and I guess what we need to say before we go through the rest of this chapter is we kind of shift genre here we move into basically a detective story yeah. a mystery story um and and this this whole chapter feels that way and it's not it's definitely not the first time wild Bo has genre hopped we've called this out several times throughout both of these stories but i continue to be impressed by how it is managed and i think that the answer here is character right character is key to everything you keep your characters as behaving consistently and you can change tones all you want you can change genre all you want if your if your connecting line is your characters, um, then that all works. It just it just does. And as long as like, like as long as Chris, Kenzie, and Victoria don't like suddenly start behaving like completely different humans just because they're in a detective story now, um, that genre shift almost goes unnoticed. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I I was as I saw this happening, I was excited because I was like, oh, I wonder how long we're gonna spend in this genre and this tone because uh yeah. I, I i am excited to see uh the story kind of uh explore this a little bit mm-hmm. um so as they're scanning around chris specifically mentions that he wants to see the insides of people and maybe i'm reading into this too much but it seems like there's something he's looking for something specific because he says i'll know it when i see it um and that to me has a connotation of like he's looking for a specific thing now it may just be that he's on a fishing expedition and and if something interesting pops up then yeah you'll know it when you see it i guess um but regardless he doesn't seem to find whatever it is that he may be looking for and then he kind of plays it off as being you know okay well that didn't work out but they do actually see that their target is a parahuman because it has the corona palentia in the brain and they kind of make the hand wavy assessment that it's probably a experienced a uh, human at that and maybe one with like a sensory power. Yeah, I I do find Chris's whole thing here very interesting. Um because the first time I read it I did not pick up on what you're saying here that that perhaps uh Chris 
like to me the story read as chris was just looking looking for the the corona but i can't say it um chris was just looking for this thing and that was his idea and they found it and good job chris you did it um but yeah going through and reading it a couple times i wonder if i was duped by him just like he does the other ones where he kind of uh, deflects and, and makes it seem like this was his idea and, and this whole thing the whole time. Um, he's looking for, maybe he's looking for something else. Maybe, maybe Chris like buys organs from people when he ruins his own and he just wants to see if any of his, <laughs> his people are hanging out here. That's very interesting. <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, but anyway, so yeah, we have this, we have this mysterious sunglasses, um, we have this parahuman sunglasses female who they were guessing triggered young and might have some sort of sensory power, possibly a thinker, possibly a master. You want to you want to take any guesses on on uh, who this person could be or. Um, so I am the thing is, I can tell you who jumped into my head, but I don't think that's who it is. So um, the the one who actually jumped into my head was Contessa. But I'm like, no, that that's not. It's not who it's going to be. I don't hmm, think it's interesting. Um, yeah. Dinah jumped into my head Dinah. and I don't know why that is. Yeah. I mean, um, a young trigger. Um, um, yeah. It, it kind of fits. This is, this is probably the type of thing where you're just like, Oh, this has to be someone we know. Right. Because yeah. it's a sequel and therefore any mysterious character we meet is definitely going to be someone we know we have intimate knowledge of, which I, that doesn't have to be true at all. I think my actual assumption was that it's not someone that we know, but I kind of played the pattern matching game like we just kind of did and f- didn't find anything satisfying. And so I just kind of dropped it. Yeah, that makes sense. So here Byron actually talks a bit about himself and I suppose opens up a bit and he, and he admits that he's been having a pretty hard time of things. And he says, uh, you know, Victoria asks how he is. He says, dealing. Some days I'm fine. Some days it catches up with me and I'm the furthest thing from fine. It's times like that where I think a lot about, he lowered his voice, how there's not a lot of K-70s left. Even before Gold Morning, most were dead or they had totally gone off the deep end. Yeah, this is uh, really, really dark, Matt. Yeah. Um, Byron is, is basically starting to get to a point where he questions if he's going to be able to survive much longer. And I think we have to link this back to this idea of the increased tension between the two brothers that we saw set up in the last chapter. I, I've known people like Byron a lot. And in some ways I'm kind of like Byron. I, I am not a person that likes conflict. I am much kind of happier with going with the flow than challenging people on things. And I think people like that you get to a point where you just can't take it anymore, where you kind of bottle the stuff up and you, and I feel like we're, we're Byron is getting pushed to a ledge here and he, he's seemingly acknowledging that he doesn't know how much longer he's going to be able to, to stay up without falling off. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's interesting to see him. I don't think I would have guessed that he was in this dark of a place um, based on what we've seen of him before. He always just seems, detached and and yeah which makes you think he's kind of okay with it but i think that's the not the facade necessarily but that's just how he comes off yeah and we we have gotten so little opportunity to really just sit down and and talk with him you know yeah 
Um, Sveta tries to relate to him, quote, from one name in a numbered case file to another, trying to give him hope for a solution to his problem. Yeah, um, hope that Victoria basically completely dismisses, right? Um, Sveta optimistically believes that there are fixes for problems, that there are solutions. Victoria, Victoria doesn't think that way. She says, when I thought of my own issues, which might have been smaller than the problems of the members of this team, I didn't generally think of fixes. And I think this goes back to our our, our evacuated building, right, Matt? This idea that things are so bad that they're not fixable, it's better to just move on. And I think that that we're linking back up to Victoria's mindset here. I do think it's interesting that she considers her problems as smaller than the rest of her team. She kind of dismisses her problems as compared to those. And I think this this probably is a, a window into why she tends to prioritize others over self-care is because minor, small, tiny problems. It's them with the real problems. I have to help them. We'll worry about my stuff after that. Yeah, it is. It is really there's a couple of interesting things that this brings to mind. One of one of them is it's really interesting that Victoria has this. You know, I suppose, pessimistic view that there's no there's no hope for fixing things when like I always, I always kind of like put myself in Sveta's shoes, not necessarily in Sveta's head because Sveta is like a better person than me, but in Sveta's situation where I'm like, I'm like looking at Victoria and I'm like, I get that you had a really rough time in there, but you do understand that like your body was completely fixed. Like I'm over here still being a squid person yeah, and, and I can still like, like see the silver lining in things, you know, like maybe, I'm not that's the thing I'm not trying to diminish Victoria's um, mental state here but it's like you did get a fix Victoria you just didn't get a complete fix so again I guess that's kind of her point is like if it's if it's a fix that doesn't make me feel that much better then it's not really a fix Um, and then the other thing that it brought to mind is uh, Darnall the the new therapist and how I I had this feeling and I, I admit there's not a lot like a huge amount of textual support for it but I had this feeling that part of her resistance to to working with him specifically is that she doesn't like his his like attitude that things can be fixed. Um, yeah, I mean, we 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 talked all about the the difference in therapy approaches between the two of them, right? And and his approach is centered around actually finding solutions, like not just coping, actually fixing. And yeah, that is something she has shown extreme hesitation to yeah and and doubt of yeah yeah so uh in into the middle of this byron talk kenzie jumps in and says that she's working on a solution to his problem a camera that lets him be seen and maybe even heard while tristan is in control um and that she's been spending more time on other things so she hasn't really had time to complete it yet but she says that it could be done in two days if she just drops everything else and works on just that yeah, this is uh, Kenzie who, let's remember, last chapter admitted that she is not sleeping at all, at all, not sleeping, doesn't have time to complete this stuff. So let's let's pile on. Let's pile on more things. Yeah. Um, I, I want to point out that um, exactly what Kenzie says here. She says, I've had other things over the past few weeks, like this bratty time box and the cameras we used at the Fallen Camp for rain and Ashley's eye camera and a bunch of other stuff, but I work on it every day. The thing that really stood out to me here is just how integral Kenzie has positioned herself 
to each and every member of this team. She made herself key to helping Rain. She made herself key to helping Ashley. This whole thing with the time box, based based on Victoria's reaction to it, like her visceral reaction at the end of the last chapter, which is like, fuck yeah, I want to get these guys, seems like this is this is designed to to get Victoria and, and have Victoria rely on her. This is what Kenzie does. We were told specifically by Houndstooth, this is what Kenzie does. She positions herself as as the most important member of the group, the, the integral to everything that's going on. She's linked in there because she's so worried that if she's not that, that you will leave her behind, that you will ignore her. Um, and this is like exactly what they were warned about. And they've all let it happen. Yeah. Yeah, right. It's it's interesting to think back on the scenes with Ashley where Ashley is like so upset about about you know what what Kenzie had said about Bob and everything and 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 in that scene you're in Victoria's head and and you weren't quite as worried as you should have been and then you reflect on it and you're like yeah I see why Ashley was so worried now um yeah so yeah. so anyway yeah. Byron really wants like he obviously really wants Kenzie to work on the box um Victoria observes but in the end he says no Oh, look, someone who uh, seems to understand that Kenzie might be a bit overworked and as much as he would love for her to solve all of his problems, it's not worth adding more to her plate. Yay. Yeah. Hey, Byron. I don't know what you're talking about with your distrust of Byron, Matt. He seems great. <laughs> yeah. It, I don't know. I don't know, man. Um, also, maybe he just doesn't want to upset the status quo with Tristan because it's all playing right into his hands. Okay. Okay. Um, whatever. Go go eat some chocolate. Okay, fine. Um, I, I want to focus on the writing here for a sec because speaking of Wildbo's descriptive writing, I really, really love this passage. Um, this moment where he says, "I could see Byron's expression change. It wasn't. I. It was interesting just how distinct he was from Tristan. Tristan had a way of moving his arms and shoulders and showing his emotions in the whole body kind of way. Byron contained it to his eyes and eyebrows with the with the slightest changes of his mouth." Lips pressing together, eyebrows drawing together, while his eyes looked at nothing in particular. I mentioned this before, but I think this is the book going out of its way to draw as much contrast between Byron and Tristan as possible. And I think that's really important, um, especially if, if we are indeed moving into a uh, let's let's deal with the Byron Tristan conflict part of the story. We've seen so little of Byron relative to Tristan that making the distinctions between them as distinct as possible um, is important because I tend to forget about him when he's not around. And I bet the rest of the misfit toys tend to do that as well. I think that's probably part of the whole conflict with him is he's not around and people just forget about him. Um, but, but, but outlining these distinctions in every way, not just their looks, how they hold themselves, how they speak, outlining these guys as distinctly different characters is very, very important. And it's also just, you know, some good writing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love that. Yeah. So Victoria then kind of pins him down on exactly how bad things can get with him. And she tells him that avoiding thinking about your problems can end up backfiring, especially when you have parahuman problems. Uh, and then she talks specifically about what happened with Amy, um, which is one of the first times she's kind of voluntarily brought that up. Yeah. Um I kind of want to read this whole part, but I kind of don't because it's really long. Um, this is this is huge, though, because I mean, we, we started with this book with 
Victoria completely unable to even think about Amy. Even thinking about Amy like led her down a, a despair hole. And we've moved past that slowly. But now she's not just thinking about her. She's talking about her with other people. And not other people like Yamada. With with people on her team. People she's she's close to. This is a very uncomfortable thing for her. And and yeah, it's very clearly making her uncomfortable. She's she's kind of stuttering in her phrases here. This is very, very difficult for her, but yeah, she's, she's using the things that happened to her sister and, and trying to help. I mean, her, her, her goal as she set out was to make sure that what happened to her never, ever, ever happens to anyone else ever again. And maybe realizing that communicating that stuff to people helps them see it. And so she's, she's pushing herself to be willing to do it. Yeah, it's. I think it's really interesting the way she's casting this description of Amy too, where she she's not like Amy is a monster. You know, she she's definitely still messed up about it and, and probably very scared of Amy. Um, but she is portraying Amy as being like Byron, someone who is just introverted, trying to deal with her own issues, unable to unable to ask for help and gets pushed too far and that's like a very human relatable thing yeah and the the other thing that i thought was interesting about this is this is good advice that victoria is giving byron here i mean we we, i think we've been kind of hard on victoria so far this this episode um especially in her kenzie relationship but i think she gives byron pretty good advice here yeah and it's interesting because it's advice that she could also take herself because um, she's kind of still not fully dealing with the stuff that she uh, is going through. Um, and I thought that was a little ironic that, hey, Victoria, maybe you should take your own advice. Um, but um, I, I w- go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, go ahead. I was just going to say one interesting thing is that like she she can automatically relate to Byron or at least kind of by proxy relate to Byron's problems here. I don't think she can really relate to Kenzie's problems because I don't think she understands what they are and that's making it really difficult. And that's causing these problems where she's miscalculating in, in where Kenzie's head is at. Yeah, that's true. So this got me thinking about something. Um, We, we have seen Victoria kind of ignore her own problems throughout the runtime of this book to help other people because she as we talked about this week she has placed a an importance on their problems over her own problems they are more important i will help them but we also keep saying that victoria is making progress so we keep kind of chastising her for not practicing uh, self-care but it seems on some level that Victoria reaching out and helping these people who are suffering in some ways from similar things is on some level helping her. So is this is 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 Victoria helping these people a form of self-care for her? I'm sure it's a form of self-care. I'm sure she could do better at the same time. I mean, I think that's that's kind of the truth of, of the matter is, yeah, it sounds like we're being hard on her because we criticize her sometimes. And then we also give her credit for progress other times. And I think we're right in both cases, you know? Yeah, that's true. And the last thing I wanted to talk about with this, and I th- when we, when we 
envisioned the show um, of following the book live as it was written, one of the things I really wanted to do was point out areas in which I think the web serial genre is unique and can and you can have unique experiences with following it. Um, not to get too downer, but there was some there was some depressing things that happened last week uh, with with Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade committing suicide. And the uh, there, that that same week, there was also a report released that national in our country suicide rates are going up faster than a lot of other forms of deaths. And so we're in kind of this crisis. And and I see in this chapter that came out after all this stuff happened, um, I see Byron in this very dark place where he's not sure how long he can hang on and Victoria kind of reaching out to him and, and talking to him and getting him to to understand the depth of his problems and, and try to be there for him. And I see these things and I wonder... Um, this is so much more impactful to me, a person reading this live now, having gone through the week that we just had versus a person reading this two, three, four years from now. Um, I think it still will be impactful, but I think this is one of those unique moments where uh, a book can speak to you in the moment as it's coming out. I I, I don't want to like jump into Wildbo's mind, but I wonder if if he was thinking about these things as he was writing this portion of the of of this chapter and i think that's one of the cool things about web serials is they can respond to things that are happening in our, in our world and as if we're following them as those things are happening it can it can be a bigger moment for us as well yeah yeah that definitely um that that exact bit where byron uh is talking about the bad days you know and and wondering if he's gonna be able to hold on that is exactly what jumped in my mind is is you know uh oh like do we need to be worried about this guy and and, and i think yeah. i was primed by the terrible things that have happened this week um and yeah I, I think that's i mean it's definitely the kind of subject matter that this story traffics in because you know you're tr- trying to help people recover from really terrible mental places and and, yeah. and those can definitely um trend toward toward suicide um yeah that's yeah i don't i don't really have anything wise to say other than <laughs> i yeah I'm, i I just yeah i just want to make sure that we point out these moments where i think doing this thing live as it's being written is a unique experience yeah yeah i agree um so they um they do kind of a trick to to show that this woman in glasses has been uh consistently uh tracing like kind of the same uh paths and heading toward the same locations by kind of drawing lines through their bodies and we follow a security guard who Chris dubs Leon the security guard um but who uh um who who Kenzie um says is named Durbin Yeah, um, I, I just wanted to point out this as we kind of do a, a character uh, or a, a setting shift here. This is the most kind of detective-y beat <laughs> in in the whole chapter. Like, there's this rhythm to it, how it plays out. They're like going back and forth and like one person find one finds one clue and then links that to something else. Then we go to something else and then we, we, we go like, and the person's name was type something into computer. Durbin Uh and then it's like a it's like a smash cut to 
uh, to uh, an interrogation scene. That's right. It's just like so it's so detective story. Yeah. And I love it. And and I didn't I think I like it took me a bit to realize that that's what had happened. I wasn't aware of it as I was reading it, but I certainly was the second time through. Um, also, there's something like it's, it's so delightful that the person's name is Taz Durbin which is just the most ridiculous name I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. Uh, it's so crazy. Um yeah, so they've they've they we, we cut to Taz, Bur- Taz Durbin having pick, been picked up for questioning. Uh the misfit toys along with elements of foresight and some cops are interviewing him and he gives them some information on the mysterious woman. Um and kind of it, it's a great it's a really great um um you know interrogation scene because you've got you know your your protagonist and your and your main characters asking clever questions and deducing clever things from simple idle chat that the woman has made and they figure out that she's likely based uh, based on her sports team allegiances she's likely from uh earth n uh, also the currency she uses is suggests that yeah i don't think there's too much to get into here from an analysis perspective i just i just wanted to once again reiterate how on brand this is for like that mystery uh genre we're in right now they like deduce clues and parse information and have this great interrogation scene it's just so good and i almost think it 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 gets very close to bordering on too good like like their interrogation skills are like so good that i'm like where did you did you learn this stuff but tristan is one of the ones leading this and so is um some of the foresight people and we don't know their background on this stuff so i think it's unfair to say oh you're suddenly good at interrogation now it's like well maybe they always were like we don't know um so i'll reserve judgment on that but i just like watching it play out was yeah was really great i'm i'm fine giving victoria a couple of points in this in this skill tree um, due to being the <laughs> child of, of a lawyer and a, a lifelong crime fighter, yeah. basically. Yeah. Um, and then we have a just kind of a beat where a- Annalise is weirdly like creeping on Victoria. That's yeah. It's kind of all, I mean, all it is, though. We got to remember that this is the guy that like comforted her after, like he was the one that understood her plight at the end of their foresight interview, right? Like he mm-hmm. was the one that's like, "I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do." I think he's got a little little thing for vicky here probably um i mean who doesn't i know though? yeah so the team decides that they're going to make an overture to lord of loss because he's the warlord of the settlement on earth N, <laughs> and then maybe they're going to travel there yeah sounds like that's where we're headed yeah and uh, kind of more or less wraps up i guess with uh i mentally revised my schedule trying to keep key duties and events straight in my head visit the orphanage where chris was staying and make sure all was well. Make time for Sveta. Make time for Crystal and get her something nice. Call Rain and Ashley and catch them up. See if they had input. Move. Ugh. Have dinner with Kenzie's family. Have a conversation with the villain warlord of Earth N. Potentially with the fate of whole Earths on the line. <laughs> um, This is a great paragraph. <laughs> and it's like the, the structure of it is so great. The the how it finishes with the the all earths on the line thing the most important one is kind of put at the end after moving uh which which the uh i think like like makes this almost kind of a comedy beat land more because like it's like uh moving so terrible oh yeah also have a conversation with a villain that could potentially change the entire fate of the world 
Yeah. Um, I think it's worth pointing out this is a pretty comedic bit here because we have Taz Durbin who is just a ridiculous human being <laughs> like and and he's like dumb and it's it's just it's just fun like the whole thing is just fun and yeah like and that's it's just delightful yeah but also this is a lot this is a lot on victoria's plate here yeah and um interestingly enough like i i don't want to read too much into this but she had this big conversation with byron about how bad he's doing he didn't make the list here <laughs> um uh, yeah it's true she's just there's and it's because there's just too much there's too much and wild Bo doesn't write long paragraphs very often um he prefers like like shorter paragraphs and and breaks a lot but this is a long paragraph and i think the length of it really helps you know like exaggerate how long this list is yeah i mean each of these things is a freaking ordeal too yeah so yeah. Yeah. I know moving. Ugh. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, yeah. So I, I want to be here for this call, Ashley, and catch them up. See if they have input part. Yeah. Because I imagine you did what with Kenzie? Yeah, right. You what? The first the first thing Ashley's going to say on the call is going to be what's Kenzie been doing? <laughs> oh, don't don't worry. We're handling her perfectly. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so that's it. Yeah, that, that wraps up the discussion. Um a little bit of name game. Uh, Annalise, is that how you say it? That's how we're, sure. That's how we're saying it. It's, it's house rules. Is <laughs> is a medieval long dagger which matches Annalise's costume. Uh, I, yeah, I, I think, did not know that. I think I, I looked it up. Um, their costume is supposed to have like a dagger image on it. So Cool. Yeah, Here I, we go. I did not know that's what an Annalise was. I don't know if I had any idea what that was. Well, that's why we play the name well, game, Matt. Good. It's good for us. Uh, effortless. I wonder if she, wonder if he's gonna stab her in the back with with a dagger. Probably. <laughs> Effervescent, um, like for liquid, giving off bubbles, fizzy, and and also vivacious and enthusiastic. Um, we don't really know enough about this character to say whether they're vivacious and enthusiastic. Well, um, we know Victoria describes him as having an emotional reading power that isn't very reliable because yeah. it read her wrong. Yeah, it read her. I love how she judges the power because yeah. you got me wrong, yeah. ergo your power sucks. Yeah, you got me. You, you detected that I have some kind of problems, um, so you're you're obviously <laughs> you? not good at your power. <laughs> Do you even power, bro? Um, oh god. So, discussion question for this week. Um, I'm. I tried to make this as like vague as possible honestly um sometimes people yell at us for that well i want i want people to take it in different ways so the question is is victoria in danger of becoming an enabler (gasps) (laughs) i don't know why i did that it's not like a dramatic question (laughs) it just just felt it just felt right it was perfect it was perfect (laughs) um yeah so that's all we got for you this week on we've got ward you guys are all part of this show now, so feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading. You can reach out to us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is at scottdaily85, and Matt's is, oddly enough, um, at back tattoo. Yeah. It's it, it, he, like, he was clearly not comfortable with tramp stamp, but mm-hmm. still wanted yeah. to get it across. Lower back tattoo. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. 
You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world that you can listen to podcasts. As always, you can find this, all the other podcasts we do, and all of our writing, essays, film, and TV criticism, and more at dailyplanetfilms.com. This week, the Daily Planet podcast discusses an anime, Matt. We talk about Paprika. That's right. I watched anime, and the results were about what you would expect. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Also, on vow to view, Elise and I are celebrating Father's Day by talking about our daddy's favorite movies. Um, check them out. Yeah, and I'm in the process of editing uh, the Weaver Dice episode. Yeah, it'll be out soonish. Yeah. Um. So if you like any of these shows and want to support them, consider donating to our Patreon account, Patreon.com/slash/DailyPlanetFilms. You can donate a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Supporting us on Patreon gives you tons of great bonuses like voting in our quarterly fan art contests, Q and A sessions, access to live streams of our recording sessions, and our excellent and vivacious discord chat vivacious Vivacious. i like it gotta change it up special thanks to new planeteer marcus at the one dollar level and steven upgrading to the five dollar level thanks guys and uh captain planet jonathan at the ten dollar level and as always, make sure you go over to Wildbo's Patreon, patreon.com slash Wildbo, and donate to him as well. This is his world. We're just playing in it. And if you can af- cannot afford to donate right now, that is absolutely okay. There are still tons of ways you can help us out. You can share our podcast on social media with all your friends, whatever else. And you can go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. This week's review comes from Admiral Matt. All the way in China, who gives us five stars and said, some books just need to be shared with friends and family who have not gotten into into the Wild Bill's works yet. This is such a relief. It's intelligent, insightful, fun. A top two podcast would recommend. Uh, thanks, Admiral Matt. Matt, how does it feel that someone just clearly outranks your Mattdom? Yeah, I'm going to have to go rethink my life here because <laughs> in, in the Matt hierarchy, I'm actually only like a lieutenant colonel. It's it's uh, yeah yeah i mean i've been trying to get a promotion but it's it's uh it's it's really competitive it's politics really um yeah, yeah yeah all right that's it for the show this week next week we will continue to make our way through arch seven torch in hand see that was like a that was, it was like a play yeah, on words yeah. the arc is named torch yeah scott wrote that for the record i'm sorry yeah. it's mean why well, you gotta end the episode on a negative mm-hmm.